was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are studied various. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, Series 3, Episode Number 2. Thanks for joining us in the Cubbyhole this week. We're very grateful you could join us on our journey of imagination across the Bond universe. Select your vehicle of choice. I'm riding the train with Baron Samady. Adam's in the hot air balloon with Q, and Phil's just amended to take the wheel from Melina Havelock in the Citroen 2CV. The usual housekeeping to begin with, if you've been enjoying the show, do consider leaving us a positive review on your podcasting app or website of choice. But if you've already done that and you're wondering what else can I do, well, you can get in touch with the show directly. We're always open to your comments, reflections and questions concerning 007. Just search our name on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter or send us a good old fashioned email at rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. Now, in our previous episode, we kicked off Series 3 with a delightful Martine Beswick, who shared her experiences working on the sets of From Russia With Love and Thunderball in the Sean Connery era. But uh, what have we got for this week's episode? Well, let's find out with the help of our usual hosting team. Firstly, he's a man who's prepared for this. He never shoots to miss. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm very well, Martin. Thank you very much. And yeah, I certainly do never uh, shoot to miss, especially when it comes to winning the quizzes, which I, I, I can't remember like the last time I review actually won one. I mean, I'm, I'm the Cubby Cup holder. I, I, you know, took off last week. Although just to tease it, Phil, you got quite upset with our uh, quiz last week. You thought that was a bit unfair. And I understand you were sort of going to go away and do a bit of a revenge quiz. You'll be glad to know there are no car engine sizes or any cars at all, really, in this week's quiz. It's, um, we'll, uh, we'll delve a bit more deeply into that once we get to the quiz yeah delve deeply is my segment phil don't uh, don't go stealing that he's just stealing everyone's segment now is phil like he's basically taken over the film club now because he's, he's actually watching the films uh, this time he's stealing delve deep but this is just going to be the phil show very soon exactly you won't, you won't be able to shut me up eventually i'll just keep talking over everyone i mean it's hard enough at the moment phil to be fair you know, in James Bond news, actually, that the Cannes Film Festival has been going on and Leia Sidhu, obviously Madeleine Swan, has tested positive, which was a big blow to the festival because she was in about four films. Uh, I've read a subsequent interview with her and actually it sounds like she's absolutely fine. Like she's completely asymptomatic and she's just said, oh, I'm just bored. I'm in my Parisian apartment. I just the only time I get out is having a coffee or an espresso on my balcony, which, to be fair, sounds like the best version of coronavirus to get in the world. I was going to say, if you are going to get COVID, I mean, that's the way to do it. I mean, you don't really want to be in a hospital bed feeling really ill. If you're going to be in Paris, you may as well be on your luxury balcony sipping espressos. Have you ever seen Blue is the Warmest Colour, either of you? And it's a kind of coming of age lesbian love story. And it made a bit of a furore at the time because they had these very long love scenes in it between Leia Sedu and uh, the co-star Adele Exotropolis. And they're so full on. Me and my mate Nick of this parish went to the, the premiere at the London Film Festival. And it was so intense that an audience member started laughing hysterically just as like a way to relieve the tension. It's good that she relieved tension by laughing. I'm not sure I would want any relieving of other tensions in, in that scenario. Well, on those lines, Ricky Gervais in one of his stand-up sets talks about he went to see a, went to a Ken Dodd gig and apparently a lady in the row in front of him 
was indeed relieving tension in the way that you're alluding to. Well, how tickled was she? And secondly, he's a man who I know dreams a lot, holding on to lies and waiting around for someone to know where he hides. Well, we know exactly where he hides and we've dragged him onto the show today. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Yes, very good. Thanks, Martin. Um, happy to be back once again for um, episode two. As ever, we're always um, happy to to engage with our fellow Bomb fans on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. So please do follow and like us. So obviously, if you want to ever get in touch with us, um, please do just search for More Cubby on Twitter and Roger Moore's Cubby Hole on Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, and, and more Cubby as in Roger Moore Cubby with two O's. If you just type in more as in M-O-R-E and then Cubby, you'll just be taken to some random website offering you an awful lot of Cubby, whatever that might be. I, I imagine gratuitous Cubby holes. He must have found me quite titillating. So let us begin this week's episode with our on-the-scene segment where we take a closer look at a memorable scene from the Bond archives. This time we're heading back to 1997 and to the world of Tomorrow Never Dies, the scene in which Elliot Carver has a less than successful launch party for his CMGN, Carver Media Group Network. But don't worry if you've forgotten what happens, we've got just the man to get you up to speed, a man who's not a stranger to public humiliation himself. It's the one and only Mr. Alan Partridge. At his swanky press launch in a weird nightclub, and after Sir Jonathan Price completely ignores him to ogle an obvious Chinese agent, Pierce Bronholm goes to chat up Lois Lane. I always wondered how I'd feel if I ever saw you again. Whack! Now I know. He mocks up them ordering each other's booze because she's a champers girl now, while nerdy beardy weirdy Gupta has an eavesdrop on them. Then there's a bloody awkward four-way chat with Carver and Waylin, where Bronholm keeps giving the game away by mentioning boats. Perhaps I should commission you to write a novel. Oh, I'd be lost at sea. Adrift. Carver goes off to start his big, Oh, look how much news I own speech, while some burly Germans cart Bond off to Hamburg's version of Abbey Road. It's a soundproof room, Mr. Bond. Nobody hears you scream. Lois Lane looks bored. A fat old geezer has a cuppa, and Bond twats someone with a double bass while Carver keeps wanging on about how awesome he is. Bond switches Carver off thanks to some conveniently placed buttons and Carver goes apeshit at his lovely lady Dutch co-host. What's happened? What do you mean you don't know? You're fired! Get out of my sight! It's asked, mate. She didn't even do anything. The end. Thanks a lot, Alan. So we've spoken before of the the prescient nature of this villain and the plot, indeed, from Tomorrow Never Dies, rather ahead of its time dealing with the fake news, although, of course, also of its time in the way that it's partly based on media mogul Robert Maxwell. And uh, yeah, Jonathan Price, or Sir Jonathan Price, as Alan correctly states, since the last time we mentioned him on the podcast, uh, really fun to see the maniacal side of his character in this scene. And uh, although on second thoughts, there's probably no other side as there. It's a, it's a very full on performance over the top. And uh, I quite like in this scene that we get the intercutting towards the end of the speech and then Bond being taken around the back by the, uh, the burly goons um so I, I quite like that we get that uh, that contrast of, of what's happening uh, but also i quite like the fact that we get brosnan still looks very fresh faced doesn't he in the role of bond he's still getting used to it at this stage so he certainly looks like he's physically capable of taking on these <laughs> these brain dead goons um never quite sure 
why Stemper doesn't is not dealing with it himself. I mean, he get at, at the end of the scene, he's like shaking his head, saying, "What? What? Why did you mess up? Why? Why is he not doing it himself? I don't know." And it's also the great interplay, you say, with Brosnan. He he's as Bond. He's there just to wind everybody up. He's just although we know from the uh, the backstories that Terry Hatcher and Pierce Brosnan perhaps didn't have the best working relationship, you kind of get the sense that that there is a bit of a chemistry between Paris Carver and Bond in this scene. One of the things I also love about this is the fact that we're in a massive sort of, as Adam, as Alan said, a kind of massive nightclub, but it still seems very claustrophobic simply because of the fact we've got so many extras all milling around. We're all, we, they're kind of all jammed in. So there's no real way that one or two characters can kind of gain space from one another. So even when Waylon, Jonathan Price and Bond are all, kind of doing the, the world's most awkward chat where Bond is basically, you know, trying to to goad uh, Carver into into kind of admitting that he's, he's behind this plot. It it just, it feels very tight and very enclosed simply because of the fact there's so many people in this room. And just the fact that, you know, in, in a room like that, I'd be sweating buckets. Yeah, having been to a fair few nightclubs with you, Phil, I, I can confirm that you would have been an absolute sweat monster if you'd have been in that place. Um, but it's good what you say about it being claustrophobic. And just the, the sort of way that that setting is created, the fact that it is incredibly dark, but also it's incredibly modern and, and high tech. And it's kind of bond coming into the digital era, isn't it? It builds on what Nicholas Sujic said about Goldeneye, it is sort of the first modern action film, which is a Bond film. And just the way that this set looks, the fact that we're in this very glossy high-tech media world kind of takes that one step further. And the fact that it's quite nightclubby with these lights and lasers and all the rest of it. Um, but it also sort of sets up Carver and how he's behaving in this as kind of an extension of what we've talked about with the megalomaniac. We go from the Connery Spectre megalomaniacs who were very much in the shadows to these kind of very wealthy public figures who didn't need to be like sort of Stromberg and Drax. But Carver's almost one step beyond that in that he's openly performing, isn't he? Like he has this big speech, you know, he's more of a public famous personality and kind of enjoys being that. I quite like that we get that little moment as well with his subordinate, the uh, the PR lady, as uh, Jeroen told us, uh, Daphne Dekas, the, the Dutch actress. I think she does a, yeah, she, as, as Alan mentioned, she's doing a perfectly good job. She's even translating it into different languages when, when he gets cut off the air. So a bit unfortunate for her, but it kind of, again, shows this, uh, this character of Carver, how he treats people in general. I guess Bond villains in the past have not treated their subordinates too well. But, uh, but this one, a real good example, I think. And Carver's almost a bit of a Harvey Weinstein in that sense, isn't he? I mean, he all famously just hired and fired people on a whim. And also the lecherousness of him as well. There's a real sense from the character just in how he behaves around Wei Lin, like ignoring Bond immediately and going to this incredibly beautiful Chinese woman instead. But also when they're in that four-way conversation and Paris sort of has those, those barbs about him, um, you know, oh, I'm trying to get her behind the desk. Oh, I'm sure she won't resist too much. She almost hints at the fact that she knows that he's a bit of a creep and a bit of a philanderer as well, perhaps. It's interesting the fact that, you know, we're, we're already kind of getting a, an insight into their world, the fact that they already kind of hate each other almost. And that, you know, obviously they're very much in a loveless marriage and obviously kind of Paris is already drawn to Bond and kind of Elliot is drawn to anything that's relatively attractive that's female so it's sort of it's interesting how that dynamic plays out so quickly um paris is interesting though isn't it because she, she has that line about i saw your name on the guest list to bond and and she clearly has prepared for his appearance and has clearly planned the things she's going to say and do in order to embarrass him obviously having changed 
her drink of choice, but still knows what his is, landing those lines to him about, tell me, do you still sleep with a gun under your pillow? And there's an interesting thing there in that, does she know that Gupta is eavesdropping on everything? Or does she know the extent of her husband's surveillance levels? And does she therefore know that that might end up landing Bond into trouble? I mean, probably not, because also it's the line that leads to her death as well. Yeah, I've always liked Terry Hatcher's performance. Maybe a bit of nostalgia. Perhaps this is one of the first James Bond films that I watched as a child. But I always thought uh, it comes across quite well, that tension between Carver and Paris and, uh, and Bond obviously joining as the, the love triangle. There are a couple of uh, things that I don't like about the scene, which are quite amusing. Firstly, the sound effects. Did you notice those ones completely over? I mean, I know it was the 90s, but they, they were still way too over the top. Bond is just on the floor. The goon kicks him quite lightly in the side and you get a bone crunching, horrible noise, which is very, very unrealistic that uh, kind of takes you out of, uh, of the scene and what's actually happening. And I actually quite like the fact that there is that soundproof room thing going on. So there's that action comedy mix of the fact that there is this big fist fight going on, but you can't hear it. You're just outside with that big fat guy with his cup of tea while Bond's swinging this big double pace at people. I think that's quite a nice little moment. Yeah, I think overall, I think that scene, the fight sequence is very good. Again, Martin, as you said, you know, kind of you, you wonder why Stamper isn't just kind of leading that because he could easily over power bond and you know as we saw in the at the end of the film you know he's, he's easily got the strength to to defeat bond yeah I, th- I think there has to be some radio silence from stamper because it gives you that uh, that moment with brosnan where he picks up the glass ashtray and kind of checks it knocks on it <laughs> yeah this is robust enough this will do and then deals the final knockout blow just a great it's those little moments of course we said connery had those little moments more de- pretty much all of them have had those those small bond moments that i really love yeah, it goes back to what you said um, at the start about Brosnan. He's much more comfortable as Bond here. He started to own the role a little bit more. And it's a slightly more relaxed film around him as well. It lets him indulge in these Connery-isms and these Moore-isms. You know, you talked as well about him going very Roger Moore in A View to a Kill when he's just saying things to the main villain, which lets him know immediately that Bond understands what he's done and what his plan is. You know, just as um, Roger Moore had that line about, what about fly fishing? When, uh, you know, when we're just after the uh, Eiffel Tower scene. I mean, Waylon's probably thinking, oh, I'm in luck here. No one's going to suspect anything I'm doing because they're just too busy watching this dude. Do you think Dr. Kaufman's at the party somewhere just having a quiet whiskey at the bar? Sort of at the back. I can't imagine him there. It doesn't seem like his kind of um, shindig, does it? With all the flashing lights and the darkness. He doesn't strike me as a clubber. Oh, no, I'd love to see that Dr. Kaufman and Stamper on a night out. That would be hilarious. Pretty sure he'd be honing his chakra torture, wouldn't he? Rather than going to the party. Mr. Stamper is a protégé of the late Dr. Kaufman, who was schooling him in the ancient art of chakra torture. He was like a father to me. Really? Interesting role model. So it's on to the main feature of the episode. It's for your ears only, the interview segment. Who joined us this week, Adam? Thank you very much. So this week we have been joined by Ariel Levy, very much someone at the top of the tree of one of our favourite Bond films, The Spy Who Loved Me, because Ariel was the assistant director of the film. Uh, So this is a really fascinating wide range chat about just how you put together a Bond film and what it looks like being in that production from, you know, one of the highest echelons working, of course, uh, across pretty much the producer, Albert R. Broccoli and the director, Lewis Gilbert. The function of an assistant director is to manage the production in all its uh, departments in order to fulfill the director's vision. That said, the parameters are, of course, budget and schedule, 
and the screenplay itself. So preparation is key. And in preparation, you work very closely with the director and the producer and the production office to establish, first of all, a schedule for the movie, which then leads to budgeting. And then when you get to production, you are thinking in three different realms. You're thinking about the day in question. So you arrive on the day in question and you have planned what that, what that day needs to accomplish. And the director would literally say to you, so what am I doing next? And, and you, would, you would tell them. So that you're, you're, you're thinking about the day, you know, the next shot, the shot after that, the shot after that, because you're always communicating with every head of department on the set in order to make sure that they understand what you're thinking of doing next, because everything needs a certain amount of preparation. Uh, and then you're thinking about the next day. And the second AD's one of his primary roles is the preparation of the call sheet. So he'll be working on the call sheet for the next day. And then you'll typically meet at lunchtime and confer over that uh, schematic. And then the third layer of thinking <clears throat> has to do with what is coming up in the schedule that requires specific preparation. So it might be a huge special effects or action sequence that's coming up in a week or two weeks or a month from now. But there are all sorts of components to that that have to be um, rehearsed. Can you tell us a little bit about whereabouts you were in your career when, uh, when Bond came along? Um, how experienced were you at the time? And what were the sort of key projects that you'd sort of worked on just prior to it, would you say? I, I think I was the youngest first AD when I first started. Uh, I was shocked at the fact that I was asked to be a first AD. In fact, I was terrified. I was 22 or 23. The film was called um, Scream and Scream Again, and it was a classic horror, very much in the, in the genre of Hammer. And it was with Vincent Price, and I think Christopher Lee might have been in it, but Vincent Price was the uh, key. He was really a wonderful person, I mean, really an interesting man. And at the end of the movie, he came up to me and he said, Ariel, he said, I've, I've done many movies in my uh, career, and I've worked with many first assistant directors. And he said, I want you to know that you are the finest first assistant director I've ever worked with. Now, he might have been primed to say that. I don't know. I, I, will, I will never know. He's dead. But uh, it, it was certainly very um, gratifying to hear that, even if it was false praise. So, like, I'd been working as a first AD for, like, for about 10 years. And I'd done, I did several movies for Amicus. I did a, a few um, Hammer Horrors. I did a, a comedy, uh, No Sex, Please, We're British. Nothing remotely the size of a Bond film. And I think that with the Bond, the line producer was Bill Cartledge, uh, who had worked with Lewis, Lewis Gilbert, on many movies. I mean, they were like really close. They pulled me in for an interview, and I, I'm assuming they, they liked what they saw, and they offered me the job. Uh, you know, I know you mentioned, um, obviously, Lewis Gilbert's um, area. What was it like to work alongside him? Lewis was not particularly paternal, but he was an absolute delight to work for. Absolute delight, because probably the most unassuming, unpretentious, down-to-earth directors I've ever worked with. And in addition to that, knew exactly what he was doing. He was a joy to work with because he knew what he wanted, he was able to communicate it. Um, if things started going belly up, 
he was very quick to find solutions. So you breeze through the day, even with complicated stuff. And in, in those days, our shooting day started at 8.30 in the morning and finished at 5.20. So Lewis would finish every day at 5.20, 5.30. You know, it's like you never went, you hardly ever went into overtime because he just got it done. And so at, at the end of six months of production on the Bond, whereas with other films, like with a horror film where you're just busting your balls, uh, you just need to go into a convalescent home, you know, after a six-week schedule. After six months on the Bond film, I was ready to start another movie immediately because it, it, it simply didn't uh, burn you out. Uh, yeah, and uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, of course, is much bigger in scale, certainly, than the the preceding four Bond films before it. Um, was that something you were aware of on the set? Did it pose any logistical <clears throat> challenges? I mean, the two things that are distinctive about the Bond films are that, first of all, you get an enormous amount of prep time. I mean, whereas I've been used to, like, you know, truncated prep time, you know, like, you know, four weeks, maybe six weeks, I think I got something like six months. That was wonderful. And the second thing is the uh, allocation of resources was really generous. So it's not like you had to be incredibly inventive about how do I solve this problem because we've got no money to solve it. There was always there were always resources. And the third thing is that I was the newbie on the Bond film. Virtually every other head of department, they all had people who'd done, you know, I don't know, two, three, four, five Bonds already. So they were part of the Bond family. The relationships were very convivial, collegial, collaborative. So that also makes things a lot easier. We love um, the scenes that take place in, uh, in the film in Egypt. Um, what, what are your sort of memories of working in that incredible location? And what were your sort of favourite scenes that you can remember filming there? It was physically really, really tough. We might have been there in August. All I know, it was, it was fucking hot. I mean, it was like, you know, 115, 120 degrees. And, you know, the English, the English are the English. So we still were working 8.30 till 5.20. I mean, no other uh, production would have defined a shooting day that goes right across the hottest part of the day. The, the tough part was we, we had a whole sequence around the, um, a night sequence around the pyramids. And that was horrific because that area, kind of loose earth and gravel, it's like the shithouse for everything that walks on four legs. And we were there at nighttime. So not only did you have the unpleasantness of, of the smell, but the, the, the shit attracted all the flies and mites. And, you know, we were, it, was, it was horrible, horrible. So that was not pleasant. And then we went to Luxor. We shot in the Valley of the, uh, the Kings and the Valley of the Noblemen in August or whenever it was in this heat. For me, one of the most memorable moments was, I mean, Cubby. Cubby was, uh, if you like, a model of what it means to be a producer. Because he was not only attached, devoted to the subject matter. He was there every day following what was going on, really down to earth, really unpretentious. And uh, he was obviously aware of the fact that the crew was just suffering with this heat and just the, the conditions under which we were working. And I remember one day, uh, I don't know whether it was Bill Cartledge or somebody else came up to me uh, 
late morning and said, uh, we're, 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 we've laid on a special treat for lunch. So when you break for lunch, there will be a fleet of air-conditioned minibuses and have the crew, you know, all pile aboard and we'll take them to this lunch. So lunchtime came and I, there was, you know, fleet of minibuses and I said, told everybody to find a, a place on the minibus and off we drove five minutes, right? And we, still in the Valley of the Kings, and we, we rounded a corner and there was this enormous marquee in a, on a banner right across the, the mouth of it, Trattoria Broccoli. We go inside and there is Cubby, who had cooked for the entire crew a spaghetti bolognese. He'd had all the ingredients flown in from Rome and he had this huge pot and he was there with a chef's hat and an apron doling out the food for every single person on the crew. And it was just, you know, it was that kind of gesture that endeared him to people. It made people want to go the extra mile. It made people just happy to, you know, be working for him. Presumably Sardinia was a much more pleasant location to, uh, to yes. film in than Egypt. Uh, did you yes. have as good a time there off camera as everyone looks like they had on? That was lovely. It was, the only problem with Sardinia was all too short, a week or two at the most. So, uh, and it was on the, uh, the Costa Smeralda, the North End, which had been developed by the Aga Khan. I think we may have been the first people in that uh, resort. And so I, I'm sure the pitch to the Aga Khan was, this is going to be incredible publicity. We're going to show the resort to millions of viewers across the world. And so, you know, we were given the run of the place. We, we stayed at the place. We filmed in and around the place. And it was, it was a pure joy. And I was going to say, of course, that also featured the um, the kind of iconic Lotus chase with the Esprit. The the chase itself was done by a second unit. I was involved in, if you like, the bookends of the chase. So there's the part where the Lotus takes off from a cliff and enters the water and disappears from sight. It becomes a submarine. So the submarine part was yet another unit in, in, in the Bahamas, Nassau. The takeoff, we shot that. With, with our own, you know, with our special effects team. And that was done with, you know, um, the shell of the car uh, with dummies inside it, shot, you know, like, like a cannon shot off this thing. That was like a one-shot deal. And then when the Lotus emerges from the water, we shot that, the, the car with, uh, with Roger Moore in it, and it's on a cable that's run underneath the sand. And we shot that, you know, where the car is pulled out of the water and Roger Moore winds down the winds a window down and throws a fish, and then the the drunk, the drunk who's sitting on the beach, the Italian, you know, swigging a bottle of wine, uh, you know, almost collapses in shock. That was my Italian first AD. We've uh, we've asked a few of our guests about uh, the experiences they've had at the 007 stage. Of course, the uh, the yeah. colossal studio yeah. space that uh, was built especially for the film. Um, what did you enjoy uh, working there? I mean, the set was just extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And um, filming on it was, uh, it was challenging, but really interesting because we had, you know, you know the set, so there were elevators at work. There were three wet docks and three submarines that I think were like two thirds scale. I mean, they were huge. And so we, that whole sequence, 
we shot in sequence because uh, as the fight progressed, uh, things were destroyed. So we had to stay in sequence so that we're always like in the set at a point that it had reached in the story. Roger Moore and I had this lovely bantering relationship. Uh, he, he loved taking the piss and he loved it when people took the piss out of him. So I remember we had a BBC documentary crew filming us and interviewing some of us. Roger was being interviewed. And if you remember the set, there was an upper, upper level where the control room was. And outside the control room, there was a, you know, a, an iron uh, walkway. And Roger Moore was sitting on that walkway with his back to the set. And so I thought, wouldn't it be cool to get one of those really high pressure hoses that was down on the bottom level and aim it <coughs> so that it just shoots up behind his back, you know, a great fan of high pressure water. What I hadn't factored into my thinking was that it was impossible to do that without completely drenching him. And so that's what happened. Uh, I, I, I aimed the hose up and it hit his back and fanned out. And he was sitting there uh, and I, I can't remember what, exactly what he said, but something like, I think that was probably Ariel Levy. And when I'm done with this interview, I'm gonna kill him. A day or two later, I was being interviewed on the bottom level. And uh, Roger Moore came uh, around with a broom and he started sort of sweeping around my legs. He was doing everything he possibly could to put me off my interview. And it was very difficult to, to, to maintain a straight face, but that was his comeback. We had sort of heard with the 007 stage that, that it was so vast that Stanley Kubrick was brought in as a consultant on, on how to light it. Is, is there any truth in that as far as your knowledge is aware? I doubt it. I've never heard that. Ken Adam, as you know, was a production designer. Ken Adam had a vast ego, huge. So I've never heard of the Kubrick story. Uh, and, and Ken Adam, too big an ego to have consulted with somebody else about how to light the set. I like that. Ken Adam sets as big as his ego. That's a, that could be a good... <laughs> Another thing I can tell you is, we had one set that was, I think it was the KG, KGB. It was a huge, huge cavernous set. And the, whoever the other actor was in the scene, I don't remember, had to enter from the entrance and walk over to Walter Gotell. And I remember Lewis, the one time that he was like openly critical, because he was not a kind, the kind of person to be critical, and Ken was there and he said, you, you've created so much. He said, the screen time that I have to, that I have to devote to having a person walk from the entrance to where the, the scene takes place is ridiculous. And it, it, again, it was, a, a, it was a jab at Ken because, again, he had designed this set in a size commensurate with his ego. Oh, I tell you, my favorite set was the underwater one. Uh, the one where Kurt, Kurt Jorgens has his submarine headquarters. There was a meeting with Ken and Lewis and who else. And you know, I think Bill Cartlidge, somebody like that, would say, the cost of uh, covering these walls with suede leather is exorbitant. 
And we hardly see what it is. Why, why can't we use faux suede, which would be a fraction of the cost? And Ken said something like, well, it, it doesn't have the nap, you know, that real suede has. As if anybody would be looking at the fucking nap on a, you know, on a few inches of suede in between a couple of paintings and a porter. I mean, that's, you know, that's the sort of, that's where he went to like absurd lengths to satisfy his whatever it was. Uh, you mentioned uh, Kurt Jurgens very briefly there. He's one of a very colourful and supporting cast in the film, along with, of course, Richard Keel as Jaws and, and Barbara Bach. Uh, what are your memories of them? Were they, were they really fun oh. to work with as well? So Kurt Jurgen was, um, <clears throat> he was somewhat aloof, but utterly professional. You know, I, don't, I, don't, I honestly don't know whether he's a method actor or not, but had he been a method actor, that would explain that he, he was always in character. Uh, Barbara Bach was delightful. She was uh, just a sweet, uh, natural person. Richard Keel, uh, I remember when he first arrived at Pinewood, I was designated to be the person to greet him and take him to lunch. And so I took him to lunch. And so I, I took him into the bar first to, just to buy him a drink. And I remember being astonished at the fact that there I was with one other person having like an intimate conversation, but he was so far away from me. I mean, I'm like five foot seven and Richard Keel, who are over seven foot tall. He was so far away from me that I had a yell for him to hear me. And it was the weirdest experience. Anyway, then we were going to the restaurant. We sit down at a table for two. And those were the days when the, the restaurant had become a buffet style. And so I said to Richard, as we sat down, I said, I, 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 and I wasn't being disingenuous. I was being genuine. I said, do you eat a lot? And uh, he said, not, not really. And then we went up to the buffet and the plate is a plate, right? You can't make a bigger plate, but he, he piled stuff on that plate. It was like a pagoda of food. Uh, and I, I was thinking in my mind, I don't eat a lot. And we went back to the table. And then at the end of it all, he reached down under the table and he pulled up a bag of oranges. There must have been like 20, 25 oranges. And he proceeded to peel them and eat one after the other. I'm just sitting there spellbound at this spectacle. Uh, and, and constantly ringing in my mind was, I don't eat a lot. Because he was so tall, uh, everywhere we went on location with him, so Sardinia and uh, Egypt, the construction department had to bring with them a bed extension because there were no beds in the hotels large enough to cope with his length. Then when we, we got to Egypt, and I remember for some reason he lost a shoe. This was a costume shoe. I said I would, I would go to the market and see if I could find a shoemaker that would build another one. So I took the shoe, which was huge. I don't know what size foot he had. It was outside, out of any size. And I went down to the local market, and the people who were making shoes, they looked at this shoe, and they couldn't believe that there was a foot, a human foot, large enough for this, to fit this shoe. I mean, they looked at it. They thought it was a boat. I mean, you could imagine somebody getting into the shoe and paddling across the mile in it. 
So that was Ariel Levy. Really fascinating man. I thought some great stories that he had. Of course, we've had uh, in previous episodes, we've heard from actors, Bond alumni, people who worked behind the scenes. But it was so interesting to get that assistant director perspective because he was kind of all over the place, wasn't he? He had to spread himself across pretty much the whole production. And so he has these stories about broccoli, about the, the actors that he had to work with. So really quite incredible and amazing that he was so young as well. It was really fascinating to hear just you know we we always hold the spy love me in such high regard and it's it's you know it's one of those bomb film that's really stood the test of time and that's um you know i think it's full credit to the the direction and um and obviously ariel levy was a huge part of that where's peckish pyramids ah! what a helpful chap so next up, we have the 007 Best segment, where we rank the seven best in any given Bond category. And this week, we're going to take a look at the henchmen of the Bond series. So who did we think were the best accompanying villains to the main villain? Let's start with number seven. Number seven. And in at number seven, it is Teehee, played by Julius W. Harris in Live and Let Die. We talked a little bit about him last week and on the scene when uh, we went to his alligator farm. Uh, very much what Dr. No could sort of should have been, isn't he, with that sort of one metal pincer hand. That reveal of the claw when he twists the end of Roger Moore's gun is a really great moment, isn't it? It comes out of absolutely nowhere. Um, interestingly, he doesn't actually laugh, despite his name, until the very last scene. He's more just got a sort of permanent big grin on his face. And then when he does laugh, it's kind of the laugh of a dirty old man, isn't it? When he thinks he's got Bond against the window and he does that weird hee <laughs> Yeah, I've got to say, I love Teehee. I think he's a great sort of addition to Live and Let Die. This is the first real kind of physical presence for the Roger Moore Bond of a villain. You know, he's very tall, he's very broad, he's he's very strong as well. You know, even without the pincer claw that he has, you know, he, he could easily sort of overpower most other people. You know, he's, he's, he's almost fearless as well. The fact he just gives this very nonchalant anecdote about the alligators as well, the fact that one took his arm off. And yet, you know, he's he's still very happy to to throw food to them. He's not, you know, most people would be completely traumatised by that. Yeah, I quite like that he's almost normal. I mean, obviously he's not a nice man, but you get the sense that he's just a man who has unfortunately lost his arm to the uh, the alligator. Uh, and then that's why he's got this uh, extra special ability. Whereas compared to some of the other villains and certainly Bond himself, who seems like a superhero at times, uh, Teehee is very much, uh, he feels like a, a real man, even if he is a very supersized uh, over the top man. Yeah, and a real man with real man needs. We've talked a bit about that element of sexual threat and aggression, which is sort of implicit in how uh, Yafet Koto as Dr. Kananga deals with Solitaire. But it's there in Teehee as well, isn't it? That reaction they cut to when uh, we first see her and she strips. He's, he's being genuinely lecherous and lascivious, you know. And then later in the train fight, when he's just holding her hand with the claw, he's clearly taking some kind of weird, creepy, kinky thrill from that, isn't he? Well, you also see that again in the train fight where Solitaire is kind of undressing down to a nightclothes and you just, all you, see, you don't even see his face. All you see is the claw just through the curtain, just slice. It's almost like a Peeping Tom style, you know, introduction for him to be in the train carriage. And it, it really makes your skin crawl. Yeah, although I'm not entirely sure how how he gets onto that train because of course he uses his claw to cut his way out of a big mail sack i mean do, do you think he just sort of was in it and someone had to lump him on and also, do you think he just jumped on himself and in that instance why did no one notice a big mail sack jumping its way onto the train some mysterious powers at play i mean baron samadhi's on there as well so uh... number six 
Okay, so in at number six, it's Necros from The Living Daylights, a very different character to T. He obviously, you know, much more athletic and, um, you know, kind of bleach blonde, blue eyes assassin, really. You know, he's he's very violent. He's very capable of killing people. And of course, he's also got, you know, these ingenious gadgets with the um, with the garroting Sony Walkman and the um, the infamous uh, exploding milk bottles. So a, a great villain, obviously played by Andrew. Andres Vishnevsky, um, and you know, and a, a real credit to the franchise again for for kind of moving on what we'd expect from a henchman. Yeah, I think what's quite interesting about Necros is the fact that he's not Red Grant. He's not this physical tower of power or a Superman. He's just a very good assassin, but a very human one who is a proper spy. He's actually not much of a physical match for Bond. Like they have the fight, but Bond bests him fairly easily. Even the guy in the kitchen kind of gives him a good go, really. The, the sort of security guard almost bests him. But his whole skill comes in subterfuge and in being a spy. Like the Saunders death, for instance. He's just rigged the door and he's just very calmly waiting for the right opportunity to um, to send it smashing into him yeah i imagine if he hadn't got the boot at the end of the film he could have retired as a milkman couldn't he, he does quite a convincing job he's he is as you say adam he is the perfect spy isn't he alongside bond in the film it's interesting he's quite mysterious as well we don't really know much about him even grant we know that he's sort of british he was a homicidal maniac and he was recruited by you know cleb but we don't know anything about necros at all uh, so maybe he was a milkman in a past life maybe he was a milkman but everyone noticed, oh, he's, he's just, he's not delivering any milk. He just keeps throwing them at people. And the KGB were like, oh, let's use that. Let's just put a grenade in the bottles. He's perfect. But yeah, so we, we do get sort of a mention of Necros saying um, with, when he's with Whitaker that he's, you know, he's kind of fighting alongside fellow assassins and, you know, freedom fighters. So you kind of wonder whether he's almost a freelance terrorist and he's, or, you know, a freelance assassin that's, you know, almost the gun for hire. Number five. And in at number five, we have Nick Knack, the main henchman in The Man with the Golden Gun. It is really a comedy character, isn't it? But it works quite well in this film alongside the great Christopher Lee as, as Francisco Scaramanga. Brilliant introduction to the film as well, bringing the Tabasco sauce to the main villain. You know that we've got a real henchman on our hands when he's doing that kind of thing and somehow survives until the end. Doesn't actually get taken out, does he, by Bond just uh, in the suitcase at the top of the, uh, the boat. So yeah, a henchman who survives, quite a rarity in the Bond franchise. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it would have been very unfair to, to have killed him off, particularly since, you know, were it not for high fat ruining everything, Nick Knack would have been the man who killed James Bond. He was stood right over him with that trident in the uh, in the garden at night. Um, he's, he's also, I think, the only character who gets to kick Bond up the arse in that final scene, isn't he? I mean, I mean, you know, kudos to him. They've never really tried a Nick Knack again, have they? Obviously, they were going for the sort of physical comedy, that disconnecting height between him well with anyone but particularly with Christopher Lee who's about two meters tall uh, but they've never tried it against someone who's really small and unassuming but is then really I guess they go for it a little bit in the ninja characters like Chor and Moonraker but it, it'd kind of be an interesting one to go back to and try again I feel wouldn't it yeah well the trouble is kind of Austin Powers killed that off with Mini-Me didn't they really so you, you couldn't really have a, a smaller actor coming back in that role I mean I Forgive the pun, but I always find Knickknack is a bit of a pain in the arse. He's just so friggin' annoying. He's just you just want to give him a slap. No, no, I'm not having this. Knickknack's the brains behind this operation. I don't think Scaramanga knows what he's talking about when he talks about all the energy stuff. I think Knickknack is the real 
brains behind it all. He's the guy with the money. He's the guy with the cord on the cooking skills. Part of the reason he hasn't found anyone who's come to the island to kill Scaramanga as part of those weird, I'll try and bump you off as a bit of a training exercise thing, is that clearly he's not been given access to enough money to get someone good over. He's just getting the random anthill mob man from Diamonds Are Forever to it. Shut up. And in at number four, it's Mr. Winton, Mr. Kids, played by Bruce uh, Glover and Putter Smith in Diamonds Are Forever. Uh, it's really important. They're the first overtly gay characters in this very much welcome to the 70s caper film that treated, I think, respectfully and, you know, played incredibly vividly by those actors. They have a real palpable relationship. You feel almost like you could imagine them just at home of an evening as well as going around the world killing people. Uh, you know, there's a real inner life to them and a real sinister sort of edge, uh, very overt, of course, in Bruce Glover's sense, and kind of nicely underplayed by that kind of hangdog sort of looseness that uh, put to Smith brings to it as well. Yeah, I think the performances match kind of the campness of the film as a whole, really. It's it's kind of, as I've said before, this is as close as Bond gets to a carry-on film, really, and, and kind of, you know, they are the standout villains of, of this film. You know, we... we barely register the fact that Charles Gray is Blofeld, partly because of the fact he, he only really appears in it until very late in the film, but also because of the fact of, you know, we are on the journey with Winton Kids, you know, we're kind of following them around as they try and work out who is behind, um, you know, this failed diamond heist ring. Going to Moonraker, we know that Hugo Drex has the number of the henchmen are us. So I, I think that's who he's thinking of when he tells Bond that he's a, a defying all these attempts to plan an amusing death for you. I think uh, Hugo Drex has had some previous knowledge of what's gone on with uh, with Winton Kidd. Uh, but yeah, I think I agree with what you said. I think it is pretty much a comedy, but they play it quite seriously. And I've seen interviews with Bruce Glover. He says that Diamonds Are Forever is his favourite film, which, of course, if you starred in a Bond film, of course, you're going to say that that's your favourite one. But he did take it seriously. He thought about where the character was going. I think there was some thought that went into, into making them sinister and comedic at the same time. Yeah, and we shouldn't forget there are some genuinely nasty moments from the minute. You know, they do drown an old lady in Amsterdam and, uh, you know, they are about to burn Bond alive in what is a very tense scene at the funeral parlour. I like the idea also that Mr. Wynn kind of, because at this point, everyone inspector will know who Bond is and all about him. So I wonder if he's kind of idolising himself and kind of styling himself almost after Bond, in a sense, with that sort of suave nature, the dapper dress, the sophistication. But then, of course, he fails on the scent. And in the end scene, Bond outsnobs him on the wine, which is the moment where he gets properly enraged. And his reaction to Mr. Kidd is almost one of just saying, I'll just burn him now. Number three. Okay, so in at number three, we have Odd Job, of course, from Goldfinger. Goldfinger's right hand man with his uh, deadly hat, of course. Also, again, one of the um, the kind of most physically imposing Bond villains as well. Um, really, this is kind of a step up from what Bond has had to face before in uh, Dr. No from Russia with Love. Um, and it really is a, a great kind of performance from Harold Staccato as well. I love that he has sort of probably the most sinister smile of any villain. Like part of the real menace of that character just comes from that, the way he very slowly turns up at the side. It's always really slow as well. He always milks those moments. He has like no dialogue, Harold Sakata, but just the facial expressions really sell that character. And I love how he's physically imposing without actually being particularly tall. 
like he's he's not the tallest character, but he's so stocky and he's so muscularly built in such an unusual way. I mean, even Hawker has a height advantage on him by like an inch or so, but he still feels like at every point the most dangerous person on the screen, even more so than Bond. Yeah, and in that finale, we can't forget that he is willing to die, isn't he? He's willing to uh, to try and make Goldfinger's plan succeed, even to the end. The yeah, odd job certainly stands out in the uh, in the memory, even though I guess he doesn't really influence the plot so much. Certainly, as compared to some of the other characters on the list. I do wonder, sort of, how many golf balls odd job has to carry on his person whenever Goldfinger goes for a round, because you know, presumably, I mean, we're on the seventeenth hole by this point. We cut out holes one to sixteen. Do you think he's just been littering them all along? Well, I was going to say, I think the boot of the Rolls Royce is just filled with golf balls. There's no, there's no clothes or anything, or suitcases. It's just all golf balls for uh, for Goldfinger's terrible golfing. There's an interesting point, what you make, Martin, about the fact that he is willing to die and, and be sort of consumed by this nuclear weapon at the end of it. So clearly his, his fanatical devotion to Goldfinger, I don't know where it comes from. Obviously, he's not going to enjoy, you know, the profits of the Fort Knox raid himself. So it is, it is really interesting, man. And it kind of makes him even creepier, the fact that he, he feels almost inhuman, almost like this sort of monster or just this kind of beast, I guess, like an animal, that he's just blindly obeying his master, even though he's going to be, you know, vaporised because of it. But it's even the fact that, you know, he, he doesn't have any fear of Bond killing him because obviously there's that moment in, in the Fort Knox fight where Oddjob misses with his hat and Bond has the opportunity to to try and kill him and, and you know and old job isn't afraid he's you know he's literally saying you know bring it on then he literally even does the hand gesture of course we then get one of the most kind of satisfying payoffs with that where you know bond uses ingenuity to outsmart old job and you know old job is quite naive in walking over to get his hat from the the metal bars and bond has to use his his instincts to know that you know, old job can be defeated without using physical strength. And it's, it's a really clever way that, that that death sequence plays out. Number two. And in at number two, the runner-up is Red Grant, of course, played by Robert Shaw in From Russia With Love. So this henchman had to be on the list, didn't he? He had to be near the top. He is uh, the ultimate, both in terms of his physical side and in terms of how he's, uh, he's trying to play Bond at the end uh, on the train. And he kills one of our favourite characters, of course, Karen Bay. So, uh, yeah, deadly. And also, I mean, he gets some practice. We, we don't really see the henchman getting practice, do we? But uh, he gets the practice kill on John Ketteringham at the beginning. <laughs> Always have to get him in into the podcast somehow. So, yeah, Robert Shaw. Excellent uh, Red Grant character in this film. Oh, yeah, of course, the great John Ketteringham. It is interesting in that opening, isn't it? You see just sort of the fear of, well, on Connery's face, of course, even though it is really Ketteringham. You see the fear on, on the opponent's face being very apparent, and it's contrast with almost a kind of relaxed, almost bored kind of expression of Red Grant. This is just a little routine exercise for him. He thinks nothing of the danger of this situation. Clearly, Ketteringham's got a real gun. But he also, I think, never doubts the fact that he's going to be able to dust this guy off. And of course, does so in one minute, 52 seconds, which is excellent. You know, he's, he's very intelligent in terms of how he can, um, you know, infiltrate Bond's world and, you know, and how he can sort of move with the shadows. You know, Bond doesn't really suspect Red Grant until, you know, he makes that faux pas with, you know, ordering the red wine with the fish. And then suddenly Bond is, is onto him, you know, without that slip up. Bond probably wouldn't really know that Red Grant is is you know against him because he's he's perfectly trusting that 
you know, Red Grant is on his side up until that moment. And of course, Robert Shaw, an extremely competitive actor. And so in all of those scenes as Nash, you, you get the sense that he has that real hunger to out Connery Connery, doesn't he? He wants to sort of prove himself the more stylish and sophisticated Bond. I do just wonder with the character, because I just wonder about the sexuality of him, because he seems impervious to the charms of all the women in the film, you know, there's this incredibly nice looking masseuse who kind of is, is looking after him when he's uh, on the training ranch, who he is completely disinterested in, doesn't even give her a second glance. And then in those scenes on the train, he seems very uncomfortable around Tanya for some strange reason. Number one. And on to number one, our top 007 henchman is, of course, Jaws, played by Richard Keel in The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. Uh, I love that this character did come back for two films because the kids really liked him. I mean, I mean certainly in those first scenes of uh, Spy You Love Me, the deaths of Calder and Beckish are played really seriously, and I think in a really suspenseful and nightmarish fashion. So I've always found it slightly strange um, that, you know, he came back for that reason. And, and by then, of course, has become a full-on slapstick hero. I mean, that Moonraker opening, when he's not got his parachute anymore and it's broken, he's just flapping around like a deranged bird, isn't he, at that point? We've never really seen anything of this presence before really I mean we spoke about Teehee being quite tall and broad but Richard Keel seems to be even bigger it seems to be you know he's even more overpowering almost like a Terminator style figure almost in certain respects you know it's like you just can't get rid of him you know the fact that he, as we said he falls off the edge of a cliff and crashes into a house in the spy you love me and you know he just brushes himself off the fact that he falls out of a plane without a parachute and you know fortuitously lands in the the circus tent yeah completely superhuman and of course takes out another jaws he takes out another shark doesn't he which is absolutely ridiculous uh, but i quite like the joke that it's making that uh, or i assume that they're making that this film is better than uh, than jaws maybe Phil, you might agree with that with your Spielberg bashing. Yeah, yeah, not a fan of uh, Spielberg, of course. He, he is the perfect Roger Moore villain specifically as well, isn't he? He's a legitimately dangerous character, but he also is played for those great funny slapstick moments. I mean, and I love how he's allowed to fly as well in Moonraker, even though he's clearly dangerous and frightening. He just grins after going through the metal detector and the guy just waves him on through. It's like, oh yeah, I'm not going to argue. You could clearly kill everyone on that plane, but you, you go for it. I mean, the bit from Moonraker that I love is the um, the scene where it's the cable cars. Jaws seems to do this impossible leap from his cable car to Bond's, which just seems completely unfathomable. I think he should join the Olympics and, you know, be part of the long jump team. Representing Poland. Oh, yes, of course. I think he'd be a weightlifter, really, if he were in the Olympics, though, wouldn't he? I mean, he can hunt those rocks in the Valley of the Kings with no problem. Now, regarding a replacement for Char, you have someone in mind? Oh, yes. Well... You can get him, of course. Next up is the James Bond Film Club. And last time out, we started the Indiana Jones trilogy, partly because Adam and I love to rewatch these films, but largely because we're astounded that Phil's never watched them. And this is literally the only way we can force him to do it. Uh, so it was Raiders of the Lost Ark last time. I think you can guess where this one is heading. Over to Adam for the short round summary. Oh, very good. I like that. Yes, of course, we're on to film number two, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, uh, made in 1984, so three years after Raiders, again directed by Steven Spielberg from a story by George Lucas. Uh, Harrison Ford is, of course, back and his co-stars this time, Kate Capshaw, Ki Hui Kwan, Roshan Seth and Amrish Puri. 
So this one's actually a prequel to Raiders. It's set a year before the first film. Uh, we start with a daring Shanghai nightclub escape uh, from a sort of mob boss trying to poison Indy, uh, who gets away alongside his uh, sidekick Short Rounds, great character Short Rounds, and the uh, rather shrieking singer Willie Scott, let's say. Uh, they eventually wash up in India, where Indy promises to retrieve to a sacred village uh, their sort of ancient relic stones and also their missing children from the nearby Pankot Palace, where the villagers believe they have been abducted. Uh, and when Indy and uh, Short Round and Willie get there, all seems very calm on the surface, but it turns out, of course, to be the secret home of the mysterious thuggy cult. And our trio have to escape and avoid becoming their next human sacrifices in the process. This is a much more darker and more disturbing film than the first. You know, we've got hearts being ripped out of sacrifice victims. We've got Indy being brainwashed by having to drink, I think, blood from a skull. And it was much less positively received at the time. In fact, it was so dark they had to create the PG-13 rating in America in order to release it. It was too violent for a PG, but obviously not really violent enough to justify an R rating. Um, Lucas attributes this actually to the fact that he was making this film while he was going through his divorce from Marsha Lucas, previously his editor, uh, although weirdly on the opposite side of the spectrum, Spielberg and Kate Capshaw, who plays Willie Scott, fell in love during this film and they've been married pretty much ever since. Um, but for all those reasons, it was my favourite one growing up. It's genuinely creepy and sinister. We've got all of that sort of disgusting stuff with, you know, the sort of animal banquets. But also it's breakneck, isn't it? There are classic set pieces in this from the very opening in that nightclub. And from there on in, it is just a series of action sequences. It's pretty much nonstop all the way to the finale with that great minecart chase and, of course, the fight on the bridge. In some ways, a better finale sequence, I'd say, than Raiders of the Lost Ark, just in terms of how it builds to both of those. And Harrison Ford's great as well. He's, he's, a, he's a bit more Bondian, isn't he, in this one? He gets to wear that great white tuxedo and there's much more because him and Willie are sort of meeting for the first time. We get to see that lovely banter and that seduction of the two characters uh, as they get to know each other and as Willie sort of stops shrieking her head off. Uh, but that's enough from me. Phil, this is your first time watching Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. What did you make of it? Yeah, I, I did enjoy it. I think I'd say you are right. There, are, It does feel a lot darker than um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's almost similar to kind of the, I suppose, the exploitation we saw in Live and Let Die, that sense of, you know, there's... There's kind of suggestions of voodoo, obviously, where the young prince is stabbing the um, the voodoo doll to injure Indiana Jones towards the end. And but as you say, there are some great moments of kind of Bond style scenes. In it. as we said, the, the opening sequence where um, Harrison Ford is in that white dinner jacket, and you know it's quite a tense scene. It's it feels very you know kind of sean connery or um you know or roger moore-esque you know it's, there's there's that sort of style to it so you get this lovely sort of contradiction of kind of humor and seriousness which i think works throughout the film obviously we see that later where um indian uh short rounder in the spike room and they're you know they're imminently going to die and then you've got willie outside screaming no let me in let me in and they're screaming on the other side let me out let me out although we've said that kind of spielberg wanted is why well, obviously he loved the bomb franchise so much and wanted to be a part of it and obviously this is his kind of homage to a bond film almost you know indiana jones was as close as he ever really got i think that you know it's it's quite interesting that he he uses Indiana Jones's physicality, he uses, you know, the reliance on his physical strength and his ability to to fight with, um, you know, with others. I think at this point, Indiana, um, Harrison Ford was about 42, so he was a little bit younger than um, Sir Roger Moore, but, um, you know, still he's in that sort of prime age of being able to, you know, sort of 
do as as we know, kind of Harrison Ford has always tried to do his own stunts, and so it's quite interesting to see that he uses a lot of his physicality through the film. Yeah, I like how you linked it back there to the Bond films, Phil. Of course, Live and Let Die. It's just assumed that voodoo is real. Solitaire actually has these powers, and quite similar in Temple of Doom. We just uh, we just have to accept that this uh, weird sect of Hinduism uh, superstition is is real. But it's, it seems to work, doesn't it, in the overall context of the film? Um, I'd be interested to see your what's your opinion of uh, of Willie Scott, the character, because uh, that's one of the main contentious areas i think most people may be saying there's a bit too much screaming doesn't uh, doesn't help it's yeah it, it doesn't really add anything to that character and again i don't think that's anything on the part of the actor i think that they were just given not really given a huge amount to work with in terms of short round i think that's again for the time i think that's you know i don't think they're trying to be offensive with it but i think to modern audiences, we probably view it as, you know, a bit culturally appropriative. I actually don't mind the presentation of these characters at all. I think both of them, if you look at it, are, are really good. With Short Round, um, he's such a courageous and resourceful character. He's the guy who saves the day in the end and constantly is the one who gets Indy out of tight spots. And they seem to have a genuinely great, banter-filled, friendly, warm relationship. They clearly love each other. And what's great is that Harrison Ford doesn't treat him as a child. He's almost treating him like he does Salah. In the first film, you know, they're, they're sort of gambling together as equals. And yeah, with Kate Capshaw as Willie, I think they're just going for the comedy of this very sort of pampered nightclub singer suddenly finding herself, you know, in India, absolutely out of her comfort zone, surrounded by creepy crawlies. Similar to Mary Goodnight, in a sense. It's, it's painting the character very deliberately as comic relief. And I think the film does succeed on those terms. Ah! Willie, hurry! Hurry, hurry! Ah, shut up, Willie! So next up, we have Phil and his bloopers. So I believe you're going to take a look at A View to a Kill, one of your favourites. So uh, is there any uh, any mistakes you found in this one, Phil? Oh, yes, plenty. So last week, we kind of looked at the sublime. This week, we'll look at the ridiculous. So really, this should have been called James Bond, It's a Blunderful Life, because this film is littered with mistakes. Particularly to note is the um, now one of the things I'm always really fond of is looking at the stunt performers that obviously double for the actors. Now, in this film, Roger Moore is 58, so there's no chance that he's doing his own stunts in this one. Now, if you really want to um, look for the uh, stuntmen, you can see them in a lot of the French opening scenes. So when we have the scenes on the Eiffel Tower, you'll note that when Bond jumps down onto the uh, the elevator car moving down, it's actually his stunt double that jumps down. And then again, we see that um, on the fight scene with um, Mayday, of course, with Grace Jones, where they're both doubled in the sequence where Bond is launched over the side and then pulled back down again. And also interesting to note that obviously when we have the car chase sequence with the Renault, that again is a obvious stuntman, but if you if you're very eagle-eyed, you'll see when the car goes underneath the barriers and obviously rips the roof off. That's clearly the stunt driver doing it, and obviously not Bond. Entertainingly, of as well, when Bond falls through the boat, you'd expect him to be kind of covered in all the icing from the cake that he lands on, but miraculously his suit is completely bone dry and clean. There's there's no sense of of dirt or um, damage at all. Also interesting to note, when 
uh, Inspector Aubergine meets an unfortunate demise with the poison butterfly. If you're eagle-eyed, you'll see in the background the extra who couldn't give a monkeys. He literally just stood there seeing a man has died and, and seems to be quite jovial and still quite happy about the fact. He even takes a moment to look directly at the camera. So do keep an eye out for that one. Um, when Stacy gets kidnapped by Zorin, you'll note that her shoe falls off, and yet when they get to the San Francisco Bridge, it's miraculously come back. So there's another great magic trick there. Um, when Dr. Mortner is shooting at Bond from the blimp, you'll note he's got a six-shooter, so obviously a six-chamber gun. But if you're listening carefully, you'll hear eight shots ring out, so that's a bit of slightly ridiculous dubbing. Um, in the fire truck chase, when um, Bond and Stacy are trying to escape the uh, police force, you'll note that Bond goes to the rear tiller to um, to drive the rear wheels of the fire truck. Now, you'll obviously we see that the ladder swings out and Bond kind of hangs from it, but the what you might not see is the fact that the lever to unlock the position is actually in the lock position. So, how does that actually swing out if it's still locked? Um, and one of the kind of those great questions of the Bond franchise, Q's surveillance dog. Now, of course, we see it go in to Stacey's house through the cat flap on the ground floor. In the next shot, we see it arrive at the bathroom and see it go in to see a rather you know tender moment between Bond and Stacey in the shower. The question is, how the hell did it get up that staircase? Because it's it's a full marble staircase. I don't think there's a lift. So answers on a postcard if you know it, but basically how did that little robot manage to climb all those stairs so quickly? Well, you have missed the single biggest uh, mistake in uh, A View to a Kill, which is Money Penny's outfit to go to that day at the races. You know, when she basically just looks like the sugar plum fairy. I was going to say, doesn't something change? Does the hat change or something? Or... Oh, no, it's not a continuity error. It's just the fashion choice itself of that dress and wearing it out in public. I mean, it was the 80s. I mean, you know, shoulder pads and big... You can't have a go at 80s special effects in the Indiana Jones films and then stand by crazy 80s fashion choices. Well, no, true. But I mean, the thing is, they're all... Have you seen what Mayday was wearing? I mean, again, I didn't actually mention this. The fact that she managed to put sunglasses on in the blimp without actually moving them is quite a miracle because they're in a hand at one point and then the next moment, they're straight on ahead. So how the hell does she do that in the space of half a second? Would you like to go and ask Grace Jones how she did that? Or question her in any way, shape or form? I mean, she could lift Dolph Lundgren up, so no. Yeah, one might argue that the whole of a view to a kill is a blooper, so you could have included the whole film there, Phil, but uh, you only had five minutes. <laughs> steady, steady. She must take a lot of vitamins. <laughs> Perhaps Pegasus does too. So it's on to the next segment, which is Delve Deeply. And this week, we're delving deeply into Portugal. Now, uh, an interesting link popped up in my research for this segment, uh, something new to me, although if you're a hardcore Bond fan, uh, if you've got this far in the episode, you probably are, you probably already know, but uh, I'll regale you with the story anyway, uh, which is apparently one of uh, Ian Fleming's biggest inspirations for the James Bond character came from his time in Lisbon. Of course, he was an officer for British Naval Intelligence, and he was staying at the uh, the Hotel Aviv in Lisbon, 
And uh, depending on what uh, articles you read, the, the story varies, but he basically crossed paths with a certain Dusko Popov, uh, a Serbian playboy spy who was a double agent officially working for the, the Nazis, uh, but he was secretly passing on disinformation to them as part of uh, MI6's double cross system. Now, uh, Popov, apparently very good looking, hotel staff called him Tricycle, because he was often accompanied by three beautiful women. And Fleming, apparently, I mean, I get this is where the story, I'm not sure whether I believe this, but apparently Fleming was watching him play Baccarat, betting $40,000. So you can see where he got this kind of inspiration for part of James Bond's character. And indeed, in the first book, in Casino Royale, uh, we see him going to the, the exact hotel, the exact casino that Fleming stayed at. Elsewhere in the Bond films, we get on Her Majesty's Secret Service, Lazenby also headed to that uh, that hotel, Palacio Esteril. You can still go there, over 200 euros a night for that five-star luxury. So pricey, but not quite as pricey as some of the other hotels that we've had in this segment. Uh, it gets an average of 4.5 on TripAdvisor, some recent reviews saying how good the spa is, uh, but also some people appreciating how much or how little the hotel has actually changed in the past 40 or 50 years. So if you uh, if you visit, it's probably going to look quite similar to what it does in On Her Majesty's. One other or a couple of uh, other things to mention while we're in the Lisbon area, you might want to visit the Palace Frontera, which was built in 1671. And its gardens, of course, were the backdrop for that lovely montage that we get of uh, Lazenby's Bond falling in love with Tracy. Although personally for me, I always think of the, uh, the Blackadder montage of Blackadder falling in love with Bob, which kind of ruins that scene for me now in the film. But you can if you want to visit it. And we should probably end with the most poignant part of the film, the, uh, the end scene where Tracy dies. You can visit the road that that was filmed, the mountainside road at the, uh, the Park Naturel de Arabida. I'm sure I got the pronunciation incorrect for that. So about an hour south of Lisbon on the N3791 road, a few kilometers where it intersects with the, uh, the N104. This is like you, Phil, on car engine sizes, but uh, those are the, the names of the roads uh, if you want to pinpoint the exact location where Tracy is tragically killed by Irma Bunt. So uh, yeah, Portugal won one of the most popular European destinations for British holidaymakers and retirees, but maybe not one that you'd automatically think of for Bond, but uh, nevertheless, we get some interesting connections with the literary Bond and the film version as well. I think I could see Phil getting very excited when you were getting into a deep into the road names there. I wonder if it's a thing to sort of leave flowers, you know, fans sort of do a pilgrimage to it to leave flowers on the spot where uh, Tracy is killed. I wonder if that's the sort of thing. Yeah, but people will just get confused think it was an accident black spot then. You just, you it just, is an accident to... black spot. A woman yeah, was killed, a... Phil. <laughs> yeah, it is. I'm a bunch. <laughs> it's dangerous. Is, is it a, With is a, is machine a film? Gun. Anyway, I think any, any, when we start taking motoring and cars in any way not seriously, Phil gets a bit annoyed with us, so let's uh, move on. I do like the story of Mr. Popov as well. I think he could very easily have been a Bond inspiration because his name sort of lends itself to a Roger Moore pun, doesn't it? Oh, he just popped off. Popov's going to pop off upstairs with his three lovely ladies. Any higher, Mr. Bond, my ears will pop. So next up we have Q-Branch and a rather special edition of Q-Branch where we're going to have a different type of film club. Answer my questions quietly, but clearly. 
Yeah, so, so this, yeah, the, the general idea of this was for us to start a dying of a day fan club, as it were, because the thing we've noticed about the Bond community online is that no film goes unloved. We don't like Quantum of Solace, but it has its very passionate defenders. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't like Spectre. You know, me and mine certainly highly rate it. But yeah, Dying of a Day seems to be the one film that nobody has anything nice to say about. So we are, as part of Q Branch, going to challenge ourselves to find things in Dying of a Day which are actually really good. And I'm going to kick us off and I'm going to say that I think the VR glasses scenes are really good. And I'll tell you for why. Because I think they're a classic Bond gadget in that they are one step ahead of reality. Obviously, VR gaming is now sort of quite commonplace. And I also think the two scenes that they're used in are great rug pull scenes. The very first time when it's the terrorist attack on MI6 is genuinely dramatic and disconcerting. We see Money Penny shot in the head. We see Robinson killed by someone later on. We genuinely don't know what's going on until everything slows down, you know, and, and our sort of fades into it. And then we sort of realize, oh, OK, it was a trick. We genuinely don't know what's going on. And we are kind of on edge and we're confused, which I think is a really interesting place to take the audience. And it happens again with the end scene in that actually the reveal of this is all going on within the VR world, Money Penny's sort of final clinch with James Bond. It happens that it's revealed just before I think the audience twigs onto the fact that we've seen this before and therefore we know what's happening. Um, and it's a genuinely funny moment. I think Samantha Bond in a sort of general dishevelled, uh, you know, phase at the end, having sort of been caught in the act like a naughty schoolgirl by R, I think is really genuinely funny. Um, I mean, you know, what R is doing, putting that particular programme into the VR uh, sort of training routine, I've no idea. But... That having been said, I think the VR glasses are really clever gadget used in a couple of really fun, interesting, disconcerting scenes. So well done, Diana of a Day, for those VR glasses. Okay, thanks, Adam. So that was our first uh, look into Diana of the Day. So we will be back uh, next week for our, our next defense of the film. Of course, if you have enjoyed Diana of the Day and you've got your own um, comments or, you know, you there are scenes that you really enjoy. Please do get in touch with us through the usual methods, obviously on Twitter, Facebook, um, Instagram, or on our Gmail account. Um, and do please, of course, keep sending in your questions, suggestions, and theories for Q Branch as well. We always look forward to uh, your interactions. Uh, sensible or silly, we'll uh, we'll always try and answer your questions. No, 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 st no stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! So it's on to the final segment of the episode. It's the quiz. What have you got this time, Phil? Oh, this time we're in for a treat, guys. So are we ready? Let's get trivial. Trivial. I want to get trivial. Let's get into trivial. Let me see you. Talk James Bond. Talk James I love Bond. How, I, love how, I love how Phil thinks that these make the edit. Last week we had, for whatever reason, possessed Martin, the middle names of James Bond actors. This week I thought we'd get even more tenuous. We're doing the Trivial Pursuit 007 edition because I got that for my birthday. And so it's going to be much like the heartache of the England penalty shootout at Euro 2020. Adam and Martin, you're going to face your own heartache this week with the quiz. So it's a penalty shootout style. Adam, you'll go first. All you have to do is pick one of the colours. So you get a choice of either blue, pink, yellow, purple, green or orange. Oh, OK, I'll go pink yes. then because that's entertainment. In the opening scene, Kronstein is a champion at what? Chess. Correct. Opening scene of so, From Russia With Love, we should say, for the benefit of the viewers to whom that might yes, be. Yes, sorry. Yeah. 
So, Martin, what are you picking? Uh, let's have blue. Who plays Rosa Klebb? That would be Lotte Lenya. It is. So, blue to Martin. You get that one right. Is this actually just from Russia with Love Trivial Pursuit, Phil? No, it's just awkward card selections. I, think. I mean, I'd be down for that if it's uh, just from Russia with Love. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine. I'm, I, I can field them all I, day. So, Adam. Green. What, what category is green? Is that. Um, that's science, no, that's yeah, science and nature's green, isn't it? If you like something like that, yeah. So, Dr. Kananga is the prime minister of which Caribbean island? That is San Monique. Yes, it is. So, that's green for Adam. So, you go 2 1 up. Martin, which color would you like? Let's have purple. How does Mayday escape from the Eiffel Tower in a view to a kill? By jumping off of it. I need a bit more than that. What? item does she use to you know not fall to a death a parachute correct yes i thought sorry i thought that was a trick question in some way. That one, that one, i was gonna say that one threw you a little bit so adam which color would you like you can have blue yellow purple or orange uh yellow please how does bond survive from drowning in the rolls royce silver cloud in a view to a kill uh he lets some air out of the tires and uses that to keep breathing yes he does Right, Martin, your colour, so you can have pink, yellow, green or orange. Let's have green. Where is Dr. Alvarez's clinic? So that's Die Another Day. I think it's Havana, Cuba. It is technically Los Organos, Cuba, but I'll give it to you as Cuba. So we're three out of three. So Adam, you can have blue, purple or orange. I'm going to go blue. Who plays Dominique Derval in Thunderball? Uh, that's Martin Beswick's mate, Claudine Auger. It is, correct. So, Martin, pressure's on now, so you can choose either pink, yellow, or orange. Uh, let's have a yellow. We haven't had a yellow. Who sacrifices themselves to present the main strike mine from blowing up? Mayday. Correct. Yes, it is. Mayday. It's a lot easier than last week, this, isn't it? Adam, you're up next, so you can have either purple or orange. Uh, let's go orange. Who sang the title song, You Know My Name? Uh, Chris Cornell sang that. Correct. He did indeed for Casino Royale, of course. So, Adam, that's your orange. So, Martin, you've got to get this one to really stay in the game. I have a feeling you'll be all right, Martin. So, Martin, you can pick between pink or orange. Um, let's have a pink. Rosa Klebb is the former head of operations of which Russian organisation? Smirsh. Correct. Sorry, yes. my mind went blank there. <laughs> you, I was going to say, it's from Russia with Love again. You've just said you can field them all day. We're neck and neck. It's five out of five for both competitors. So, Adam, if you get this one, you've got the upper hand. Bond uses acid from which device to escape through the window of Khan's palace? Uh, I think that's the fountain pen. Correct. So, Martin, you've got to get this one to go to a tiebreaker. Who sang the title song for Diamonds Are Forever? It's Dame Shirley Bessie. It is indeed. So that's six out of six. We go to not so much a tiebreaker this time, but it's going to be quick fire on the buzzers. We don't actually have a buzzer this week, but it's whoever answers first will win it. So in which country is L'American? Martin? I'm not sure, but I'm going Bolivia. It's not. No, Adam? I've just remembered it. It's Morocco. It is. It was from Spectre. It's from Morocco. So Adam wins it this week. I think you're now 2-0 in the lead, I think. Yeah, but my quiz next week. So, you know, I can't possibly win that one. 
So that's it for this week's episode. Thanks a lot for joining us. We'll be back again with some more special segments and interesting guest appearances. In the meantime, do catch up with our previous episodes if you've missed any and do get in touch with us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Gmail. But uh, that's about it for today's episode. Thank you very much for joining. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. Uh, we went further than England and Italy, didn't we, in that shootout? Also, that Italian goalkeeper was bloody massive. It's like trying to score against Mr Tickle. No wonder we missed some. <laughs> You're the Donnarumma of the Bond quizzing game, aren't you, Adam? Did you say Donna Summer? Oh, don't no, start. No, but that's better. <laughs>